Africa is a place of many contrasts, geographically, economically, culturally, and financially. While the continent is home to some of the poorest countries in the world, it's also home to some of the world's fastest growing economies, thriving financial ecosystems, and world-beating digital innovation. And while financial inclusion for the continent as a whole remains amongst the lowest in the world, this headline figure overlooks the staggering advances that have been made over the past 20 years. Many of these advances have been made possible by digital technologies, such as mobile phones, digital-only banking, and cryptocurrencies, which have enabled many countries around the continent to make rapid progress by leapfrogging legacy technologies and systems used elsewhere. Welcome to Africa's Digital Financial Journey, a podcast series that discusses the amazing changes underway across the continent's financial services sector and how technology is being used to widen and deepen financial inclusion from Cairo to the Cape. I'm John Everington, Middle Eastern Africa editor at The Banker magazine. This second episode will look beyond the successes of mobile money across the continent to look at what has yet to be achieved. We'll be talking about how cash remains king across the continent, the challenge of connecting up the new digital rails, both domestically and internationally, and the next steps needed to boost the next generation of digital financial services, notably digital lending. 2022 marks the 15th anniversary of the launch in Kenya of M-Pesa, the groundbreaking mobile money service that we discussed in the first episode of this podcast. The impact of M-Pesa and other mobile money solutions such as Orange Money, Airtel Money and MTN Momo is often portrayed from afar as an unqualified success story and indeed their impact is worth celebrating. The number of people aged 15 and above with a bank account across sub-Saharan Africa rose from 34.3% in 2014 to 55.1% by 2021, with much of this rise attributed to the growth of mobile money accounts. Let's remind ourselves once again that Africa is made up of over 50 separate countries, and the growth of mobile money has been far from uniform. Of the 184 million active mobile money accounts across Africa as a whole, 55% are still held by users in East Africa. What's more, the growth in financial inclusion brought about by mobile money and latterly instant payment systems such as NIP in Nigeria and GIP in Ghana have only recently prompted a significant rise in e-payments across the continent. Peer-to-peer and cash-in, cash-out transactions continue to account for the overwhelming majority of transactions on mobile money platforms. Less than 10% of all payments made across Africa are made via digital or mobile channels. This in turn has hampered the growth of the next generation of digital financial services, notably digital lending, which remains very much in its infancy. I recently spoke about such questions with Edem Seshi, an associate partner with McKinsey in Lagos. I began by asking him about the great successes of mobile money services in the past 15 years. It's been a tremendous decade or two of significant change. Right. We've had decades prior of engaging in financial transactions being bank accounts, which very few people had. And in the last two decades, we've seen the explosion of mobile money and alternative payment methods. The recent data suggests that something like 1.2 billion people now have access to basic financial services, primarily through mobile wallets. 
Now that's roughly equal to, to the population of the continent, right? So that's staggering. And the volumes and values have grown so massively that we now think of them in terms of percentages of GDP, right? And that's currently pegged somewhere around 40% of GDP. So it's been massive. I think the biggest winner has been all the 1.2 billion people that now have access to, to these services that had nothing like that prior to, to the advent of mobile wallets and other alternative forms of transacting. The other way to sort of understand this growth is in proportion to the sort of the financial services industry, right? Just in the last five years, if you look at, say, 2015 to 2020, right? These wallets and, and payments, right, which also includes merchant acquiring, issuing, and processing, they barely accounted for about 20% of the total financial services revenue of 120 or so billion. But in terms of growth, they've accounted for well over 40% of all of the growth, right? So that there's been growth about of about 30 billion in five years, and more than 40% of that growth has been accounted for by just wallets and payments alone. And that financial services pool includes everything from accounts, insurance, and, and everything else in, in financial services. But wallets and payments alone, which were a small share of that, have accounted for more than 40% of the growth. So of that 30 billion, of growth in financial services, nearly 18 billion has come from just wallets and payments alone. So it's been tremendous growth, right? So there's 1.2 billion consumers phenomenal. That is all new revenue also generated for players in the industry from telcos to banks to the infrastructure services providers. But it's also worth reiterating, isn't it, that this progress hasn't been uniform across Africa. It's very concentrated in some very key markets, especially in East Africa. I'm just wondering about why the progress hasn't been as fast in some parts of Africa and why it hasn't been as fast as those initial markets in East Africa, would you say? Something like seven countries completely dominate more than 50% of the volume and the growth, and they will likely intensify going forward. When you look at the markets that have moved ahead of the rest, there's a number of things you can point out. I think the big one is actually the push by the governments in those countries to increase financial inclusion, which led to a number of things, especially on the infrastructure front. So you saw the emergence of mobile money and, and the mobile wallets for which sort of regulator, uh, regulation created a space to, to exist. It's a completely new way for people to access financial services. And also the lowering or the differentiation of KYC requirements that made it much easier and faster for people to get access to basic financial services. The other component then is the infrastructure that did come with mobile money, right? So we tend to think of infrastructure in terms of technology, but the mobile agent networks that came with this have been critical to, to the success. And this is a key part of the difference between what you can call successful and less successful countries. Where the agent networks haven't grown fast and quickly enough and exceeded something like a minimum threshold of, say, 200,000 agents across the country, both rural and urban, you don't see that uptake even where the service is introduced. And this is a big part of the explanation for why you see even the same model that was successful in East Africa failed to take off in other places. I think the other part of this is the economics. In, in all of these structures, if the economics don't work for all the participants in the ecosystem, it doesn't take off, especially for, for the agent networks that are critical to this. Because remember, while we are talking about all of this, Electronic payments still account for under 7% of all payments. Bulk of transactions is still in cash. So you do need an offline intermediary that's going to convert cash into electronic payments before it starts to circulate. And agents are a critical part of that. 
but the agents do have to be incentivized to take on this as a business and to remain active. So sometimes the economics has been gotten wrong, but that's also improving because I think we've learned enough now to know that there are certain levers you can pull to improve the economics for agents, in particular that merchants or traders or small businesses that have an existing business are more likely successful as agents because that tends to be an additional source of income, whereas doing agency as the one and the only source of, of income is tough, especially if agents in rural areas. So this these two elements about having an agent network that is at scale, having the economics work for all the participants in the ecosystem, not just the not just the telcos, but also the agents and the banks has been critical. We're now at the stage where mobile money is no longer a new thing. Digital financial services in Africa, are no, it's no longer a new phenomenon. M-Pesa is, is a sort of a very developed technology and mobile money is in a number of countries across the continent. How would you characterize the maturity of the digital financial infrastructure across key African markets? I mean, is it starting to mature? Is there still growth and development that needs to happen? Are we now in a place where we can see interesting new services develop? How would you characterize the state of play at the moment? So I think I'll, I'll start off first with like a general statement and then try and uh, unpack it in a number of components. So I think overall, if you, if you could make a general statement about a continent of more than 50 countries, you would say we've been in the stage where we've been building sort of the the basic building blocks of the infrastructure to just enable money to move electronically. And that we are coming around to the end of that, of that phase where we are starting to see the emergence of products that are built on top of that infrastructure that do more than just move money from point A to point B. Now, having made that very broad, very general statement, let's try and unpack it into, into at least three components, right? One is domestic payments. A lot of the infrastructure that has been built has been built to enable payments, electronic payments domestically, i.e. In, in, within country. And you've seen that work well, right? So mobile money has been a great one, but there's also been other infrastructure that has been developed, especially instant payment rails. But those have also been in, in sort of the same countries that are in the bucket of fast movers or, or the largest growth drivers. So whether you're talking about national instant payment rails in Nigeria or Ghana instant payment or Pesa Lake in Kenya, you, you're still talking about the same countries. Now, it's also important to understand that you've seen growth where these rails have emerged, this, especially the instant payment rails, even where mobile money hasn't really been dominant or, or it, virtually non-existent, right? So in a place like Nigeria, in a place like South Africa, the growth hasn't been driven by, by wallets or mobile money. In fact, they, they're only starting to emerge, right, in, in those countries. In fact, in South Africa, it still hasn't emerged. Nigeria is starting to emerge now. But those instant payment rails have been core driver of, of growth combined with sort of lower KYC requirements, right? So if you take the example of Nigeria in particular, even without mobile money, Agent networks that allow you to access sort of a basic version of an account with a lower entry point or lower KYC requirements have been great, right? And this, that shared agent network infrastructure has been great. But all of that is domestic. What we haven't really seen a lot of is cross-border rails. So you'll see that while remittance is a big part of Africa's um, economy, you know, even fundamentally of the economy and a huge source of FX, but 97% or more of remittance flows 
that are traceable or, or formal or, or electronic are between Africa and the rest of the world. Intra-Africa remittances are still like 3% because money is still not moving freely between countries yet. Those cross-border infrastructure rules are only beginning to, to emerge. Right? And it's also worth making the point, isn't it, that despite all the digital development and transformation that's happened in the past 15, 20 years, it's still very expensive to remit money to uh, large parts of Africa. I think the World Bank says it's more expensive to send $200 to sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else in the world. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. We still have, you know, this huge infrastructure gaps to bridge. And also it's true that we have a, a larger proportion of our remittance uh, arising from outside of the continent. Um, and it's also important to understand that infrastructure is not the only driver of the lower cost of remittances, right? There's also sort of FX risks and other risks that are embedded in that cost. And FX is a, it's a huge source of income for remittance players. So I think that's, that's your, your spot on, your spot on there. Then I think the final one is agent networks, right? Which are not what you would think of as then they are a critical component of our infrastructure because of just the structure of the economies and the huge levels of informality and what we're starting to see is that these agent networks are also transitioning from captive mobile money agent networks to more of industry platform and utilities on top of which other products including insurance and lending and even account opening can be built right and so you're seeing the decoupling of mobile money as a service from agent networks as a distribution network or as another layer of infrastructure. Before you even start talking about the cross-border um, flows, this technology has been around for a while, but interconnection is still quite a new thing in many of even the more developed, uh, mature mobile money markets in Africa. I mean, I'm interested sort of why that, why it's been a little bit slow to kind of to get to this stage where you have all these different systems talking to one another. Fantastic. So it's been a, it's been more of a consequence of what problem the stakeholders were trying to solve at what point in time. Remember that 20 years ago, all everyone had or anyone had was bank accounts, and that was very few people. So the push was really to drive financial inclusion, which also had to have an economic rationale to, to it, but the, the motivation was primarily derived from financial inclusion. So there wasn't necessarily a push to go beyond, to, to think beyond what happens once everyone has access to basic financial services. Right? But once that happened, we are now in the phase where you're seeing the integration of rails. So you, you had sort of mobile money becoming a huge but isolated pool by itself that sat beside and parallel to and didn't have an intersection with bank accounts, for instance. Right? But what you're seeing now is that you're seeing an emergence of new breeds of players, particularly the fintechs, but also national rails that are integrating all of these payment methods. Because now one of the characteristics of Africa is actually the proliferation of several alternative payment methods. But you're seeing new rails emerge. So rails like the NIP, GIP, et cetera, those rails are integrating the transfer of value across payment methods, whether that is different wallets or with bank accounts, et cetera. So now funds can flow back and forth again in this in this country. But these are like new developments in the last five to, to six years. Um, it also started from actually ensuring interoperability between the wallets themselves, because even the wallets were sort of isolated and it was more of wallet players competing to create the, the largest closed loop. But in the interest, again, of financial inclusion, regulators forced the integration of or the interoperability of wallets, right? And now we are in the phase where in the last you know, five, six years, we've seen the integration of all these payment methods 
And now you're seeing that the push is even going further, mostly sponsored again by central banks, with things like national QR codes that allow you to make payments to any payments method from any payments method. Now that mobile money is a little bit more developed, some of the companies, some of the providers, some of the fintechs out there are starting to talk about products which go beyond payments and storing money going into newer products, particularly lending, which seems to be a sort of a hot topic in, in this space. How successful have these attempts been thus far? I would say perhaps not very successful. If you just look at the very low penetration of lending products in Africa, everywhere in Africa, right? And if you compare us to sort of other, uh, even emerging economies, credit is still a very small part of our economy. First, we need to understand what enables lending, right? Lending, just like insurance, by the way, these are fundamentally underwriting products, which means you need to, to be able to understand the risk in order to, to underwrite it. If you try anything that's creative around that, you build up a loan book only to say all of it crash, right? And this has happened a number of times. Now, the data that you require in order to build robust underwriting models has, I like to think of it in two dimensions. There is the volume of the, the quantity of the data, and then there is the depth of the quality of the data. Now, unfortunately for Africa, mobile money has been primarily driven by two types of transactions, P2P transactions and cash in cash out transactions. And upwards of 70% of the monetization actually come from cash in cash out. But peer-to-peer -peer transactions are not high enough quality of data, even if you have trillions of transaction volumes, you have trillions of data on one data point, and that's just not enough quality to make a determination about people's credit worthiness or their income levels. And this is where I think there is promise in terms of the direction of, of electronic payments and mobile money, because where the gap has been is integrating these payment methods into daily transactions beyond P2P transfers. And it's a big part of the reason why you still see so much of transactions being conducted in cash because these payment methods haven't yet been integrated into daily transactions. And what do I mean by this? If I walked into my private bank four years ago, I couldn't pay with mobile money. I couldn't pay that bar as a business with mobile money. Maybe Baron is an individual I know and I can transfer the, the funds to, to him as a P2P transfer, but it's not, it's not being captured anywhere as um, a, consumer, a, a consumer spend. Or if I were to in Kenya, if I went to buy my Ugali and Kachumbali somewhere, I couldn't pay. Those, that option of integrating into daily transactions wasn't there yet. I couldn't take transport or take my Uber or subscribe to my Netflix and pay with mobile money or any of this, even bank accounts yet, because instant payments hadn't quite emerged. Which means that you don't have the essential ingredients to lend to people, I guess. Exactly. You don't have the quality of data to build a really robust module. Now we've seen some players sort of innovate around, around this and try to combine other data points like airtime consumption, location, et cetera, to build better models. But ultimately you need all these payment methods to integrate and embed more deeply into daily transactions in order that you can develop a proper sense of people's spending patterns, their spending power, their earning power, et cetera, and even, you know, make inferences from the type of things they're spending on about their credit witness, right? That's where we're moving to now, and that's something that's been enabled a lot by the fintechs, basically integrating all of these payment methods into gateways, alternative rails, et cetera, that allow the integration of mobile money, bank accounts, et cetera, into commerce, 
into daily transactions or into consumption. It's going to be very interesting to see how this this interconnection drive, how that sort of boost product development going forward. Edem, I mean, you've mentioned just a few minutes ago about uh, the use of cash being very prevalent. I mean, again, in Europe, which is becoming increasingly cashless, and also when we read about the success of things like M-Pesa and MTN and Orange's mobile money services, there's the assumption that, oh, technology is going to solve all the problems and that this is going to replace cash. But if you look at the figures in Africa, cash is still very much the dominant medium What are the kind of factors behind that dominance and that preference for cash? I mean, we've talked about the interconnection issues, which makes paying with cash often the sort of the better option. But what are the other factors which explain the stickiness of cash at the moment, would you say? I think the the big one is if you thought about the economy actually as revolving around transactions between two parties, right? One is a consumer and the other one is some merchant that is selling some service or product. Where the payment methods have really proliferated and we have like almost 100% coverage there is on the consumer side. But on the merchant side of people that actually are selling things or providing services, the economy is hugely informal. And across Africa, we have something like 80 to 90 million SMEs, nearly all of which are still waiting to be acquired and being be empowered with the means to accept electronic payments. And until that side of the divide is breached, you just have consumers with payment methods that can make payments to anyone or any service provider or seller that they actually need to make payments to. So there is a disconnect. And then you start pay transactions and cash in, cash out. And you see huge volumes of cash in, cash out, because even when you have the money in the wallet, you need to go and take out cash when you need to spend. So it goes back to integration to daily spending. I think once we see that penetration achieve critical mass, we should see cash reduce at an accelerated rate. But the base is so huge that this is why we tend to talk about Africa more in terms of the opportunity and less in terms of the competition or winners or losers. Because when you have 93 or 95% of cash to this place, there is such a long way to go before you start to say that the market is saturated. Yeah, the opportunity is huge, isn't it? Yeah, the opportunity is huge. And basically, the way to put it is um, Africa's 80 million SME merchants are still waiting to be acquired. And once that does happen, i.e. these merchants and traders and sellers and service providers are also able to accept electronic payments, then you have a true bridging of the two sides of that transaction. Indeed. Adam, we're coming towards the end of our time together. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask you about who's going to be the driver of the next kind of wave of digital financial adoption across Africa. I mean, is it going to be the telcos who've done so much in the past 15 years or so to really bring people into the system for the first time? Is it going to be the traditional banks across the continent? Is it going to be a new breed of fintechs that we're seeing, such as Flutterwave, Paystack, companies like that? What's your take on who are the drivers going to be? That's a fantastic question and one of my favorites to, to answer. I think one is the definition of what a fintech is. Because a fintech is basically just delivering, leading with technology in the delivery of financial services, which means that telcos, banks, anyone can be a fintech. So it's not who is going to win, it's what is the business model that is going to win. And that business model is available to all the players in the industry. And I think they're starting to see even the telcos realizing that they need a new business model, a new operating model. So you're seeing the carve outs of uh, mobile financial services dedicated place out of the, the, the telcos to operate more like fintechs. 
it's more of there is a business model that's going to win and that business model needs to be a lot more customer centric it needs to be a lot more agile a lot faster in creating and putting products out there on the market it needs to be enabled by really robust and scalable technology and it needs to have massive scale and robust unit economics that is the business model and that business model is open to what you would call fintechs but it's also open to banks and it's open to telcos and i think to be frank what we're saying is that all the players are now moving in the direction of that business model so the simple answer is that we're going to see the fintech business model win but it will not be the reserve of non-traditional players. It's only the beginning and the opportunity is huge and we're only at this very early stage. So it's going to be so interesting to see what the next five, 10 years brings and the kind of synergies that we're going to see in the new products. It's, it's going to be fascinating. Edem, thank you so much for your thoughts. It's been great talking to you. Really appreciate all of your insights that you've shared with us today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, John, and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Africa's Digital Financial Journey, a monthly podcast from The Banker magazine. If you're looking for more Africa content, check out our recently published series of articles on South Africa's banking sector, including our interview with Deputy Finance Minister David Masondo. You can listen to this and other episodes in this series on thebanker.com, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you access your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about what you've heard, or if you'd like to help me narrate Africa's digital financial journey, do get in touch at john.everington at ft.com.